0: Hello everyone. It's May tenth, twenty twenty two. So Rocket Lab snagged a first stage. It wasn't a complete success, but they're getting there. We'll also be talking to Aways Ahmed from Pixel, a cool company on the cutting edge of hyperspectral technology in space. It's a big show. Let's get it off the pad and lift off. Power. Welcome to episode 358 of the Open mm-hmm. Robotics Podcast.
1: I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Yeah. So I don't know if you guys remember. A while ago, I talked about the Lockheed Martin open source docking port standard. Uh, it's called MAP uh, for Mission Augmentation Port. I downloaded the standard and uh, yesterday, well, uh, over an, a period of time this week, I actually catted two models, the, uh, host port and the SAV port, like the visiting, the service vehicle, the visiting vehicle port, um, I actually catted them in on shape. And there are some unconstrained, uh, dimensions and parameters that you're kind of allowed to do whatever you want. But, uh, I've catted the, the very basic, um, requirements that are set out to conform to the standard. And i I'm really proud of it because it's, it's really pretty. And, mm-hmm. um, I think what I need to do next is, um, add some parameterization so that I can add a scale factor and, um, like 3D printing tolerances that you can adjust. But, um, I want to make a, a 3D printable model of this so that you can have a, a docking port, uh, in your hands.
0: So isn't this the one with, um, the weird, measurements of like three and something quarters an inch and whatnot. Remember we were talking about that? Am yeah. I thinking of the same thing?
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely in, uh, in inches, and thank goodness it's decimals and not fractions. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there are definitely some weird numbers, but when I was catting, uh, I actually realized why they've picked a lot of these numbers. Um, so, for instance, they specify... Um, the size of the docking plate, and it's just a hair under nine inches and It actually turns out that that's intentional. They started with a nine inch uh hexagon a hexagon with nine inch sides, and then they chamfered off the corners and so it's it is actually a nine inch side hexagon. Um, but it the m- way that they measured it was from chamfer to the chamfer rather than from theoretical. Yeah, exactly. And then there there are some other weird things. The uh, the host uh, docking port is actually a hexagon, but the visiting vehicle, the SAV port, has two different length sides, um, and it's it it just comes down to the geometry of how these things fit together you have these petals on the outside and and when you have uh specific tolerances that you're trying to hit but yeah i was able to to CAD the whole thing up and it looks really nice. Um, I put the on shape link in our discord. I'll have to try to remember to put it into the show notes as well. If anybody wants to take a look at it and maybe make a copy and, and do something else with it.
2: No, that is very interesting.
1: You'll have to show us the finished product. Yeah. We'll, we'll see if I actually wind up 3d printing this thing and having it successfully uh, assemble. I don't know. My dear.
0: So let's talk about Rocket Lab and their helicopter catch, uh, or their helicopter catch and release. Mm -hmm. So they caught their first stage booster, and this was for the mission there and back again. It wasn't entirely successful, but they did accomplish the most important thing. They caught that first stage, and it was really cool. I I got to watch it. I watched it live, which I think is better because then you don't know what's going to happen. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's more tension. But actually, while watching it, I wasn't entirely clear. If they had successfully captured it, it seemed like something went went wrong, but they didn't really specify. I think at least not until a little bit later, so I wasn't sure what was going on because I saw the capture and or I heard the huge you know crowd, and they' were all cheering, and then I heard some sounds of despair after that so
2: yeah exactly it's like it's like a sporting event that if you if you're watching a sport that you're not familiar with and you don't know whether or not something was good or bad you just listen to whether people yeah, are cheering yeah. or booing and so that kind of is how you interpreted what had happened
0: but i mean it seemed like it was successful and then something went went wrong after that i just wasn't sure what but now we know exactly what happened or we don't know the exact why, but basically they lost that first stage, or the helicopter pilot had to let it go. He had to release it um, because of some weird instabilities once uh, he had that thing under load, and he didn't like what was going on with the helicopter. Um, That's totally at the pilot's discretion to make that Uh call, because it seems like a pretty hairy thing to do.
2: And like you referenced before, I feel like snagging it in the first place is the most challenging thing, right? So if you're able to pull that off, then once you understand how it's going to be tugging on the helicopter in the future so that the pilots are not uncomfortable, then you're just you know that that should be easier to solve than actually scooping it in the first place.
0: And they said that they that the pilot noticed some different load characteristics than you know what they had experienced before during testing. And I'm just wondering what those are. And I think that's the big question that we all have. Yeah. Like, what could be so different?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because they they've done capture tests. You know, they dropped the thing and and tried to catch it, and that and that went fine. So yeah, and and Peter Beck said that it it wasn't going to be a big deal. I think the word he used was trivial <laughs> to <laughs> yep. to fix it but yeah i hope they tell us more about what exactly was unexpected and and why it it was like that
2: chris in the chat speculating uh, perhaps more weight than expected
1: yeah there could be more residual fuel than they tested with mm-hmm. yeah
0: that's the only conclusion that i came to as well because other than that the stage should weigh the same and the capture should be the same right i mean mm. once it's already under its you know parachute the velocity i believe is the same as well um, I could be wrong, but I think it's, you know, uh, that part was the same because I don't think he would have made the capture otherwise. So I guess it's just once it was under load, that's when there was a difference detected. And that would have to be, I don't know if it has to be, but it seems like it might be the, you know, mm-hmm. like the actual weight, the mass of the vehicle.
2: So, I mean, if it's identical, then, I mean, could there have been different um, uh, weather conditions a bit? You know, like maybe there was some winds that were blowing in a way that they weren't expecting. But like, I don't know, I feel like they would have... I don't think that's really what happened, but that, like that's the only other kind of variable I think you could introduce.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair.
2: But that's really neat though that they, I mean, right? They've been dropping these in the drink and scooping them up anyway and refurbishing them. So, so this booster, Peter Beck says he hopes will fly again. So even though yeah. it was
1: <laughs> only caught yeah, they, briefly, they didn't make it to land, which is a good thing because if you drop this thing on <laughs> land, it's it's. Oh, done. that
2: would be unfortunate. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, so when he dropped it, did the parachute still? still work? Did it like redeploy or reinflate?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Well, I don't, yeah. I don't think, I don't think it must have. I think, I think it's pretty reasonable to think that it wouldn't necessarily open all the way, but even if it doesn't, you know, just keeping the orientation right when it hits the ocean is probably probably the most important thing, but who knows? Like they, they probably lost a bunch of altitude like intentionally. So hopefully it didn't have that far to drop anyway.
0: The right orientation is that just, uh, the boosters first kind of like a diver would yeah. do.
1: I mean, that's how it would hit the the surface of the ocean under a parachute. So mm-hmm. that's what they designed for. Because I could I could see this thing belly flopping and just breaking into <laughs> into little shards of of carbon fiber. <laughs>
2: yeah, maybe maybe just you know erasing most of its vertical velocity during the capture was enough mm-hmm. that if the parachute doesn't reinflate, then that kind of offsets it just being yeah. in semi free fall. Yeah, remainder.
1: it can only go so fast, right? <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: And so the the next exciting thing with Rocket Lab is uh, Capstone, which is coming up. <laughs> and that's uh, that's going to be a great one. So, right, Capstone, I don't think we've talked about it on the show recently. I mean, we certainly have talked about it before, but uh, I think it's been a while. So, a reminder this is the Cislunar Autonomous Positioning System Technology Operations and Navigation Experiment or capstone it's a tw- it's a 12U cube set that's going to launch on an electron on an electron to the moon it's going to go to an NRHO uh calling it a NIRHO i don't think it's catching on so it's an NRHO <laughs> and <laughs> uh <laughs> alas yeah and uh i mean this thing has kind of been uh slipping a lot they were able to build it real quick uh, uh pretty much but there's you know there was a pandemic and uh issues including the uh, uh the spacecraft that's taken to the moon ultimately but it's it's really neat the idea and right now it's got a no earlier than launch of may 27th um with launch windows available daily until late june but essentially it's going to go into this nrho the uh the lunar photon uh, spacecraft is going to uh, take it there and then do its own flyby so lunar photon is basically uh uh, the photon, the the photon IP or interplanetary photon, but like configured for lunar missions, and so they already have an idea for kind of how, if you go to Rocket Labs website, how a uh, how this one would look compared to a uh, the Mars mission that's going to take the uh, Escapade small sats, or I think I think Escapade's cube too, but either way, small or cubed. That one has <laughs> uh, deployable uh, solar panels versus uh, body fixed ones for Lunar Photon, and then just you know other other. Uh, changes as well and so they also have kind of a mock-up of how the uh the venus mission would look which is pretty cool to see and so yeah so lunar photon will drop off uh capstone into the near uh because it's a super low energy orbit it's going to take four months actually to get uh, Hmm. to get into that uh, position and they have to recalculate it every time there's uh, a slip in the schedule. It's something they can do, no problem but it's it's just I think annoying for the <laughs> uh, the flight dynamics team to have to keep recalculating that every time but uh, they're professionals and so they're doing a good job with that and 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 what Capstone stands for right that first uh, part caps is actually a technology that is developed by Advanced Space, uh, a company, one of the partners on this mission. This is really neat because I don't remember this from originally learning about Capstone, but uh, Anthony Colangelo and and, and Miko had a phenomenal interview with um, uh, Advanced Space's, uh, I believe it was his CEO. But uh, basically, uh, the idea is that you can do navigation... Uh, just by without, without basically any communications back to Earth. And so they're going to try to use this CAP system where, <laughs> this is so great, Capstone is going to be talking to the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So the LRO team is in on this, and they're like, yeah, sure, we can do this. And so they're going to be t- uh, demonstrating based on the, you know, it's almost like a, a remote GPS. So based on the signals that are getting sent back and forth between them, they'll be able to ascertain where relative to the moon uh, both spacecraft are. Without the Earth basically solving solving that for them, six months of that, and then an eleven month extended mission, and uh, and then I guess we'll have a CubeSat slam into. Uh, but but I mean, and I, I guess I left out the, the, I guess the other, I mean, even bigger than caps in a sense, um, the main thing is to actually put a piece of mass in an NRHO because it'll be the first time we yeah. send something there and then understanding exactly what it happens because, right, lunar gravity is weirder. You want to have actual data to compare to your modeling and just kind of refine things before you start sending humans there.
0: Yeah, I'd kind of forgotten that, yeah, this is the first thing going into that particular orbit, huh? Mm-hmm. And the whole point is to you know characterize what it's like to be in that orbit before you send a whole space station there. Um, it might be good to know a little mm-hmm. bit more. But that is yeah. interesting, yeah.
2: And just in case you've forgotten what an RHO is, it's it's right rectilinear is a just means line like linear. And so it's it's essentially a very very eccentric orbit where you're kind of I guess below the south pole tens of thousands of kilometers, and then you dive in close to the north pole and then dive back out again. And so that's sort of the way it looks. And so when you're super eccentric, it, you know, on your way in and your way out, you're basically going straight towards the moon and straight away from the moon. So hence the linearity, or rectilinearity, I guess. So.
0: All right. Well, good luck, and I hope that they snag this next one. Yes. Let's do four short and sweet this week, and Ben, what's the first?
1: All right, Astroscale performs a close approach. Astroscale announced a successful close approach this week. They brought their LCD vehicle within 159 meters of the client satellite after LCD had fallen back to 1,700 kilometers. This approach successfully demonstrated using the LPR sensors, or low-power radio. Additionally, onboard relative navigation was demonstrated, a feat that was not in the plans at launch. As the engine failure investigation proceeds, a systems issue has been identified as the root cause for three of the thruster faults, but the cause of the fourth fault is still undetermined. A final rendezvous and capture is planned, and Astroscale is considering autonomous operations for it.
2: Next up, Phantom Space makes big engine purchase. Emerging from stealth mode, Phantom Space has placed an order for more than 200 rocket engines from Colorado-based startup Ursa Major, a massive order reflecting Phantom's bullish outlook on the small launch market. Both of Ursa Major's two engines, the Hadley with 5,000 pounds of thrust and the Ripley with 50,000 pounds of thrust, are included in the order. Phantom was co-founded by Jim Cantrell, the former chief executive of now-defunct Vector Launch, and has two rockets under development, named Daytona and Laguna.
0: And then next up, Russian rocket motor breaks apart on orbit. The U.S. Space Force recently tweeted that Earth-orbiting object catalog number 32398 broke up last month with 16 pieces of space debris associated with the event. The object was an ullage motor from a space tug which had delivered three GLONASS satellites to orbit in 2007. There are currently 64 of these SOZ motors or Sistema Obespecheniya zapuska that's my best Russian on orbit. And given the leftover propellant they carry they are prone to explode with at least 54 explosions to date.
1: Alright, and fourthly, Astra preparing for Canaveral launches. In an investor teleconference this week, Astra said that they were ready to perform the first of three tropics launches out of Cape Canaveral. NASA's time-resolved observation of precipitation structure and storm intensity with a constellation of small sats or Tropics CubeSats, <laughs> will be launched in pairs. Astra is currently waiting on a launch license which will cover all three launches as a package. Astra's rapid cadence capability will be put to the test as completing the campaign by the end of the quarter is a possibility. In a blog post, Operations VP Bryston Gentile talked about how their rapid production cadence was a boon for their LV0008 anomaly investigation, providing flight hardware to validate against. All right, welcome to the interview segment. Today we have Owayze Ahmed, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Pixel, with us. Good morning,
3: Aways. How's it going? It's been going well. Uh, thank you for having me. It's nice to be here.
1: Yeah, we're we're really excited to talk to you. So, give a like. We're gonna get way into the weeds, but let's just start out with a quick uh, overview of what Pixel does.
3: Absolutely. So, I think in essence, what we're doing is we're building a health monitor for uh, Planet Earth. But how we do that is. Uh, through space data. So we're a space data company and there's two important words there, space and data. We build our own satellites that will go up uh, into the orbit around the Earth, capture images of a planet and beam them down. And we also do the data analysis for that, build a software platform and the tools that are necessary to actually extract the useful information from, from the images that these satellites beam down. The use cases are as varied as identifying pest infestations early in crops to identifying leaks that the natural gas pipelines might have, to looking at forests and uh, predicting where the next forest fire might break out. Um, Now, there are a lot of these Earth observation companies that have been in play for a few years now, but the thing that differentiates is the fact that we do hyperspectral imaging, which we think is the next evolution for what Earth observation data should look like, um, which helps us capture a lot more information than uh, existing satellites that are currently up there, uh, which also helps in, uh, in that vision of ours to build a health monitor.
1: And before we talk about Pixel more, I'd, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your personal history. Like, we get a lot of questions from younger listeners who are interested in space, but they're not exactly sure what they want to do, or even sometimes what they can do in space. Um, so, what got you started on this career path? What decisions did you have to make? Did you know that you were uh, interested in working in space, or did it start with something else?
3: Yeah, absolutely. No, I think uh, it. The basic essence for why Pixel started was essentially because I loved space and, and almost all of us here in the team do love space and working on something related to space, which gets us, you know, waking up excitedly in the morning. But I, I remember that I think the love started when my dad used to get me these encyclopedias that you get for kids about black holes and the mm. solar system with beautiful pictures. So that got me fascinated about everything space, and um, I was see very seriously planning out how to actually become an astronaut first, and then an astronomer later, mm. and then an astrophysicist. So there was always something astro that was uh, that was interesting. But I, I grew up in a small town village here in uh, in India, so not a lot of avenues to actually get into that. Um, I didn't even have access to a telescope, for example. But uh, for some reason in high school, um, there was this once in a century event called the transit of Venus that was happening where you see Venus, uh, you know, traversing uh, across the face of the sun. And um, the school had managed to arrange a telescope, which was uh, the rare thing. And and Mm -hmm. watching that actually cemented that love even more. But then I think the the next few years after that were uh, spent in preparation for university and that love sort of went into the background. But in college, I think um, there were a couple of experiences that reignited that love, which led to uh, what we're doing at Pixel. The first was there was a student satellite team that was working on uh, a small satellite um, with the help of scientists at the Indian Space Research Organization. And I got into that team and started reading up and learning about what it actually takes to build a small satellite. Now, that was an entirely different learning experience um, given how you have to build hardware mm-hmm. for space and learning it um, from someone um, at ISRO was um, obviously a very good experience and then the second experience was um, i ended up being on the founding team of uh, hyperloop india so Elon and SpaceX in 2015 came up resurfaced the idea of the hyperloop when they went ahead and built this one mile long vacuum tube at their headquarters in in los angeles and there was an open challenge to teams around the world to build a hyperloop or vehicle that could travel at really fast speeds um and we ended up part you know creating a team in university um to participate here the the reason for participating was to be able to get a chance to meet elon uh, but we ended up getting through the first phase mm-hmm. and then the other other two phases. And finally, we were given the green light to go ahead and manufacture it. Now, we couldn't do that where we were studying because it was right bang in the middle of a desert in Rajasthan. Um, so we came down to Bangalore, which was the aerospace hub here and uh, manufactured it in about three months, took it to all the way to LA, uh, showed it to Elon and the rest of the team there. Um, and while we were there, they took us on a tour of the SpaceX factory. So looking at those rocket engines being built, looking at the Falcon 9 booster that had first landed back on Earth that they keep it in front of their um, office. That's when I think it crystallized again that I want to work in space for the rest of my life. So thankfully those experiences gave rise to that Eureka moment. I remember the date it was August 27, 2017. So um, I think that's, uh, that's my background. Um, That was what reignited that love for space and uh, what led to Pixel.
1: That's, such a, a great path to walk what what was your uh, your bachelor's major in like when you were working on that satellite team what were you studying
3: yeah so i think uh i i entered university um for an integrated masters in mathematics so it was a four year course that combined the bachelor's and masters in mathematics but mm-hmm. i also ended up taking a dual in in mechanical engineering at college um, but I, I ended up dropping the mechanical engineering because it would have meant one more extra year in college, which I wanted to really spend at Pixel. So um finished the, the master's in math, but ended up dropping the mechanical
1: engineering. So what uh, domain of math uh, did you study and, and what are you interested in today?
3: <laughs> so I think uh, there was a variety of things in in math. There was, uh, you know, calculus to nonlinear algebra to, uh, you know, partial differential equations. So uh, a lot of it, which I have since now, uh, forgotten as well. But uh, um, it was not what (laughs) I studied. Um, I I didn't end up going to classes a whole lot. Uh, You know, my professors only saw me during the tests and exams. It was because uh, uh, most of my time was spent either working on on the satellite team in the first two years or the the Hyperloop pod in the next um, year there. So um, yeah, it it was majorly everything I learned outside of curriculum than than, uh, Mm. what I did in curriculum.
1: Okay, so I Getting into, uh, hyperspectral imaging. I've got a great quote here. Uh, this was, uh, one of our listeners, uh, Chubby in our Discord when, um, when I reminded everybody that we were doing this interview today that they could listen into. Uh, Chubby said, uh, the reason I'm excited about this particular subject, hyperspectral imaging, is that it has a lot of potential, especially if paired with a deep learning based computer vision system it's basically predators ir and superman's x-ray superhuman vision the nro is probably heavy heavily invested in it it can see deforestation algal blooms pollution wildfires ice melting desertification etc and i think that's such a great a great way to explain why this is a fascinating topic so before we had hyperspectral imaging we did like wide multi-band imaging, right? Red, green, blue, the way that human eyes work. And then we started progressing from there. So what makes hyperspectral imaging so special? And why is it different um, than systems that are based on human vision?
3: Yeah, no, I think that explanation was better than, you know, I have said in a variety of different places. <laughs> um, so, you know, just a little bit of background here. Um, Pixel started with just wanting to do an analysis of existing satellite imagery, um, and that included multispectral and RGB and panchromatic that was coming down. And uh, there was also a hyperspectral satellite that NASA had launched called uh, Hyperion, which was beaming down hyperspectral data, but had since then been decommissioned. But there was a lot of research that came out of there that startled a lot of people that you can see, see a lot more and do a lot more with hyperspectral data. So that was the first brush in terms of uh, us realizing that there could possibly be an opportunity to to do something uh, for which a gap existed. And um, as, as you mentioned in that quote, the difference essentially was in terms of how much information you could actually garner from the same image. And there's three types of images, RGB, multispectral and hyperspectral. RGB is essentially the same as what our phone cameras are able to take or our web cameras are able to take. And it's the same as what our eyes are also able to capture. So that's only red, green, and blue wavelengths. Very wide-band wavelengths, information in three broad channels that we're getting. So that's information in three channels that we can analyze. And the satellites that are up there today can take images um, using multispectral images in which you have these three bands, RGB, but you also have a few bands in the infrared range. Uh, a good analogy here would be the night vision goggles that you might have seen the armies, um, the military using where in the night you're able to see the heat signature uh, that you would not have been able to otherwise see with just normal normalized so that's you going into some bands in the infrared range so you're increasing your information channels through which you can extract information to about 10 from 3 in multispectral but then hyperspectral is that is the next step there where you're capturing information in hundreds of these wavelengths in the entire visible and infrared range and not only hundreds of these uh, narrow bands but they're also continuous in nature in the sense that there are no gaps um, in the visible and uh, the infrared bands that you take which means you're not missing anything that your eyes would not be able to see a quick example if you were looking if if, if three satellites um, one that had rgb one that had multispectral, and one that had hyperspectral cameras were looking at the same farmland what an rgb satellite would be able to tell you uh, is whether you're looking at farm or whether you're looking at a uh, you know town you're looking at a city that's about it multispectral satellites can go one step beyond and can tell the health status of the crops it's green it's red it's somewhere in between it's average but what hyperspectral enables you to do is it helps you see the soil nutrient contents it helps you see what species of crop you're looking at it helps you see uh, whether there are any pest infestations that are hidden to normalize before system before symptoms can show up Um, and another example would be uh, if you're looking at a natural gas pipeline your rgb satellite would only be able to look at and say that there's you know, there's a pipeline here, your multispectral sensor would not be able to do a lot more, but hyperspectral can clearly see if there's a leakage of an invisible methane gas or any other greenhouse gas, um, which you can help to, you know, curb those emissions. So I think that's, that's essentially what makes hyperspectral different. And it's, and the reason why it's different is because of the the different uh, chemistry of the sensor that you're using. So RIs have a certain chemistry that enables us to see in these three wavelengths. Multispectral sensors usually are either CCD or CMOS, silicon-based sensors, which are good enough to capture data there. But if you're doing hyperspectral, you need to look at um, you know different ways of cutting that light into a uh, very small, narrow band. So it's, it's essentially in how you build that camera. The, the same difference that an MRI machine might have versus a normal phone camera in the medical domain um, you're doing that with hyperspectral from space.
0: Is your technology the very first time that this is being used in space or are there other precedents? Because it's, it seems like this is something that I guess I'm not very well versed on it, but it seems like I've heard of this before, but I'm probably just thinking of, you know, the normal spectral imaging and not hyperspectral imaging.
3: Yeah, I think it's it's been done in space before, but it's been done um, very few number of times and it's been done only very recently uh, in space. So I was mentioning this NASA satellite called the Earth Observing One satellite, which was decommissioned in 2015 uh, that had a hyperspectral imager and it was the first instance of a hyperspectral image putting, uh, being put up in space. But, um, uh, you know, after that, I'm pretty sure, uh, you know, the U.S. Air Force also has launched a couple of these satellites, but that data is not available to anyone. And I'm pretty sure some governments around the world also have it, um, again, uh, only um, within closed doors but if you were to go on the internet today or try to obtain hyperspectral data for a commercial use case or for a research or an academic use case you cannot get any of this data from space there are a lot of ways in which people have obtained it from drones or airplanes, but the gap has been that for the rest of the world, which is open, which is commercial, which is academic and research-oriented, this data is still not available, although there might be satellites and there have been precedents um, which were you know technology demonstrators. I, I think um, it's it's on top of those technological advancements that we are also building. Um, it's, it's the data that came down from the NASA satellite that enabled research in the first place to show that Hyperspectral data can see a lot more from space, um, which means that it's probably a worthwhile investment to have this data coming down more regularly and globally as well.
1: So, Dennis is our uh, our astronomer, <laughs> and uh, he can correct me if I'm wrong, but like hyperspectral imaging was initially used looking out away from space for astronomy um, when we first started capturing hyperspectral data from Earth's surface. Um, did we have a use case in mind, or was it kind of uh, like let's collect this data and see if it's worthwhile?
3: I think um, um, a lot of instruments that have been in space have been towards different planetary bodies. I'm not sure of astronomy-related oh, sure. use cases because those usually require very specific, you know, bands to look at. Right. Uh, you can't have a wide band and you know hope to hit something because. Your signal is so low that you need to be able to actually concentrate on on some small parts um to to actually you know get enough signal uh, but hyperspectral images have actually been sent out to different planetary bodies there's a bunch of them revolving around the moon there's a couple of them revolving around mars Which helps you actually see what the surface consists of. Um, you know, it just looks red to us if we are looking at, you know, the surface of Mars. But what is the geology? Does the soil consist of, you know, what metals and minerals and chemicals? Um, is there actually, you know, polar, are there actually polar ice caps? And, um, does that, is that water, um, the same, same way it is here on Earth or is it somehow different chemically? So I think hyperspectral imaging has been used for that. And hyperspectral imaging has also, you know, been, um, surmise to be used for a lot of asteroid scouting um, related use cases, which was how I came across this in the first place, is that you can help identify which asteroid or comet actually has which metal or mineral, um, which can help you identify the, the important ones from the non-important ones. So um, more than Earth, yes, it has been used in deep space, but I think it's now time we rotate we mm-hmm. it back to the Earth.
2: And I guess, I mean, I guess that really just shows that getting spectral information is just valuable period <laughs> you know <laughs> um whether you want to study some scientific phenomenon or even figure out or figure out what's happening on the ground in terms of crops or even you know you could tell what metal uh different you know spacecraft are made of based on the spectra you take of them and so that's how we were able to tell that one thing hitting the moon was not a uh a falcon 9 booster but was instead a uh, a long march so uh, yeah but oh but yeah so uh away my question for you was uh Uh, somewhat related was related to david's where hyperspectral imaging has been used on orbit before looking back at the earth uh but has it been miniaturized over time or was it right kind of out the? was it right out the gate able to be made into uh relatively small sets because i i assume pixel is a small set actually could you tell me a bit about the size of Pixel as well? Yeah,
3: yeah, no, I think we are, uh, we are a micro satellite. Uh, the, the satellites that we have up there are around 15 kilograms, one five, whereas the ones that are launching next year will be closer to 40. Um, so they're still very small, but, Um, I think we are also um, one of the first attempters to actually miniaturize this without compromising on the quality Um, because there are two ways of making hyperspectral images and the second way has only been possible recently which we are using so let me uh, take a step back there's two ways one is the spectrometer based approach where you have a sensor and you're using a lot of these gratings and prisms and mirrors to split the light in the hyperspectral fashion for them to fall on your sensor. Um, and that means that by the virtue of the fact um, that you're using uh, various greetings and prisms and you know, large optics, it makes it very bulky. So the satellites have weighed anywhere between 300 kilograms to about a thousand kilograms for, for hyperspectral images. Versus what we are doing is the second approach where we directly deposit filters on top of our sensors, which means that there's no gratings, there's no prisms, the light falls on the sensor directly and the filters essentially help uh, break the light into different um, wavelength bands that the sensor then captures. Which means that we, since we don't have a complicated optical assembly mechanism, we can keep it miniaturized while at the same time the quality is higher because almost all of your light is hitting the sensor and the filters without having to be dispersed by different optical elements. Um, so whatever NASA has launched or whatever uh, the German space agency has launched or ISRO has launched, which are hyperspectral, have been the spectrometers uh, ranging between three hundred and eighty kilograms to about a thousand kilograms versus our satellite, which you know weighs lesser than forty. In fact, in the in the sp- In the launch that we did last month, April 1st, um, there were two hyperspectral satellites on board there. One was uh, a German space agency um, built NMAP satellite, which has been in manufacturing for about 15 years now. Uh, And then there was the the Pixel hyperspectral satellite, which was built in about a year and a half. Um, That one uh, by by DLR was a thousand kilogram satellite with a 30 meter resolution. Um, and whereas ours was a 15 kilogram satellite with a 10 meter resolution. So, you know, a better resolution, uh, but still smaller. And that's because we were able to leverage these uh, advances that have only happened in the past four or five years um, versus what would have taken someone, you know, 10, 15 years ago.
2: Yeah, all of all, all the, you know, ground-based telescope uh, hyperspectral imagers that I ever encountered were... Those definitely in that former camp. Those very large, massive uh, uh, ones with kind of traditional elements.
1: Could you talk more about the the trade offs of using like a a filter technology rather than a, a spectroscopy technology? Like, I, I would assume that any time that you're able to make such a huge advance in the in the mass of an instrument there's going to be some sort of trade-off even if those trade-offs are perfectly acceptable for your application
3: yeah yeah, no, absolutely there have to be some trade-offs i think you know for scientific purposes if you want a really high signal to noise ratio you will still prefer going with uh spectrometer approach versus this but from a commercial standpoint I think we made the call that you know the quality that we're able to get with this is actually good enough so a few examples would include that if you're having large optics um, to be able to actually get this much and, and you know splitting the light using gratings and prisms you can stack multiple of these sensors and you're getting uniform data in all of those sensors versus mm. if you have four different sensors with filters deposited on top of those four different sensors. It might not be exactly the same because there will be minor fluctuations in, in how those filters have been deposited. So I think you are you you can build larger systems um, with uh, using the previous approach than you would um, with the newer approach because you can maintain the uniformity and consistency of how the light is falling on all your sensors. Because the splitting of light is happening just once, but you're then, you know, um, illuminating them on different sensors versus since the filters themselves have some accuracy when you're depositing them, uh, they might not be as accurate or as consistent as you want them to be. The second is you can keep the the bandwidth of different bands the same using the spectrometer approach. So if I were to look at between 400 to 500 nanometers, I can have, uh, you know, the bands Equally 10, nan- 10 nanometers apart, so 400 to 410, 410 to 420, and so on and so forth. But with filters, the the farther apart that you go um, towards 2000 to 2500 nanometers, your um, the the filter bandwidth range actually starts increasing. So you can't have them as minute as you would want them. So there are some hmm. trade-offs such as that because. There's only it's it's a very recent field, um, you know, depositing these filters directly on the sensors to make it hyperspectral. So it's continuing to evolve and become more accurate and become more consistent. But until then, that's the trade-off that you sort of have to live with.
1: So you you're using just one CCD or multiple CCDs?
3: Um. So in fact, we don't use CCDs anymore. CMOS sensors have actually become better. Oh. See-
1: <laughs> right right right.
3: We use CMOS sensors for uh, you know a particular range and then we use uh, mercury cadmium telluride sensors for the rest of it because CMOS has a limited range in which it can capture infrared data.
1: Do you have multiple sensors that are all looking at the ground and some of them are filtered differently or is it is it that you are able to apply filters to like sub-pixel areas on one sensor
3: um no i think it's a um we can't do sub-pixel um we have a series of lines of pixels that are reading out the same band and then you sort of integrate them um but different satellites will have the same imager built the same way but we'll have sort of minor very minor differences which won't make a lot of uh, difference for us Mm -hmm. uh, in commercial use cases right Uh, whether that's agri companies or oil and gas companies or some other companies it doesn't really matter when there are such minor fluctuations in in consistency but it could matter a lot if you are you know nasa and looking at a particular scientific goal so there's a difference in how accurate you actually want it to be how consistent you actually want it to
1: be but but so so you're actually doing multiple types of filters on the on the same sensor that's So, so you're almost like doing like a a checkerboard on your on your sensor of different filters. That's
3: right. Yeah, yeah. So I think we call it as that's really cool. (laughs) Um, So different filter layers deposited on top of the other. Some of them led through some light. Some of the others led through some other, you know, lights. So yeah, yeah. I think you (laughs) said it correctly.
1: That That's the interesting part of your satellite, uh, or the hardworking part of your satellite. What does the rest of your satellite look like? Have you settled on a, on a particular design? I know that you said that the size is going to go up for your production vehicles.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think it, there's been two iterations of the satellites. Um, iteration one is up in space, beaming down data today. Um, so that was a Smaller satellite, which is a prototype satellite, right? it didn't have to have a long lifeline, lifetime to it. Uh, I just needed to ensure that uh, for a few months we could take images, beam them down and ensure that everything is working fine versus the future ones um, are being built much more robustly. One because the increased lifetime requirements, they need to now last at least seven years in space. Um so a lot of your components have to be some of them have to be radiation hardened, some of them have to be shielded from radiation. And we need to add things like propulsion to, you know, keep push, pushing these satellites up back to the orbit rather than them disintegrating in the atmosphere in just a couple of years or so. Um, so I think that's the difference in the iteration one, which was, you know, build quick and dirty, send them up there, just needs to work mm-hmm. for a few months and we meet down versus, yeah, now we actually need to think about how it will survive for seven years and, you know, hopefully a lot more beyond that. Because mm-hmm. um, these will be the ones that will be regularly beaming down data, which we can give to our customers. So now we have finalized on the design. The production vehicles are actually in production um, and will go up early next year. So the design has been frozen, thankfully, after about a year, year and a half worth of work. Um, but the ones up there were uh, you know, even smaller, just prototype satellites.
1: W- were they CubeSats? Were they... Were they bigger than that?
3: Yeah, I think uh, the the demo satellite that we built here was a uh, was still a, a sort of a nano satellite. It was not a cube satellite. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, we didn't decide that this has to be the satellite size, and then try to cram into it as best right. as we could we decided that this is how the sensor will look like because this is what the quality makes sense and then design the satellite around it which means that we couldn't try and cram that into a cubesat format um so it it was a 30 cross 30 cross 30 centimeter cube uh, sort of a mini refrigerator yeah. uh style uh satellite micro satellite um, that housed the camera on top of it because we required a little bit more power and a little bit more volume than usual CubeSats give us. Um, So yeah, uh, uh, it would have been a lot more cheaper and faster if we had gone the CubeSat way because it's a lot more productionized now everywhere. But uh, sadly, you know, we had to uh, make sure that the camera was first and foremost designed, and then the satellite around it.
1: That was TD two. I I read somewhere that before that you had flown a hosted payload uh, in 2021. Is that correct?
3: That's right. Yeah. So I think that was in collaboration with a bunch of partners. That was even a that was the even more quicker and dirtier approach. We just wanted to validate the the camera system as a whole you know the filter uh, on top of the sensors does it actually work as it's supposed to in space etc so that was in July of last year which was a 30 meter camera so you know even a demo for a demo <laughs> um,
1: what did that what what did getting that in space look like did it take a lot of work to be able to integrate with with the rest of the spacecraft or or did you have access to sort of a a uh, plug-and-play kind of interface where they handed you power and you handed back data to send home.
3: Yeah, I think this was fairly s- simple. Um, we so nan- we worked with our partners, Nanoionics, on this, which is a you know satellite manufacturing company. They make cubesats, so this one was actually a cubesat because it was a much smaller image as well. And um, we had Dragonfly Aerospace uh, for our camera manufacturing partners, who sort of design, who, who, who you know actually build and test these out for us and we, we just had to you know send this camera that you know was designed to Nanoavionic's avionics uh, office and then they integrated it into a uh, 6U CubeSat and then they sort of launched it in, in space so in this case we just had to ensure that the camera was built according to how you wanted it built and get mm. it sent to the place and they integrated it launched it and sort of operated it for us as well which was much faster than while we were figuring out how to do things on our own.
1: And then you had a third vehicle that didn't launch, and you're still planning on launching it, I think, later this year, right? What are you going to be learning from that vehicle?
3: Yeah, that's a, that's the same. That's The camera on that is the same as the one that has gone up. Okay. So nothing new. It's just a, don't put all your eggs in one basket situation. We wanted to have <laughs> at least a couple of demo satellites so in case the rocket somehow blew up or the satellite didn't respond to us, we had another one. Um, as a backup so our second satellite which we manufacture actually ended up launching first and then this this first one is waiting for launch what actually happened last year was uh, we were doing a bunch of final testing before the satellite was supposed to be shipped to the launch site um, here in india but we realized that one of our vendors who had said that they had done some tests had actually not done those tests and uh, you know we had to actually test those parameters and rechange some of those parameters so the call Three weeks before the launch was actually do we risk it, send it up there and hope that it works or do we actually not launch it and actually, you know, take it through another rigorous test campaign, this time ourselves, not depending on a vendor's word and, and do it. So we, we decided on the latter um, where we said it's 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 all right if you're a few months delayed, um, but we should not risk this first one that was up there. Now, we didn't know at that point in time that the delay would be more than a year because we shifted mm-hmm. that satellite to the next Possible ISRO rocket that was supposed to go up to the same orbit, um, and and we need to be a certain orbit. It needs to be a sun synchronous orbit. It needs to be close to the surface of the Earth around five fifty to five hundred kilometers. Um, so you know we had to shift. We had to shift it to another rocket which was going within those parameters. And that was only in October later, uh, you know, last year, uh, in 2021. But they have been plagued here at ISRO by a lot of these COVID-related supply chain delays. Uh, So that rocket Mm. is still not ready. And, you know, we are just waiting for that to go up. So now our satellite is ready, but the rocket is just getting ready to go on the launch pad. Uh, As soon as they tell us, you know, we are ready to integrate the satellite, we will transport it there, integrate it into the rocket, and it goes up. But uh, since we already now have a demo satellite that's working beautifully, uh, this just becomes a a secondary thing for us, which adds capacity to to what we have in space, but nothing new in terms of learning um, that we'll get from this.
1: What was your first instinct when you realized that there were components that that might be faulty?
3: I think uh, (laughs) we were... All running on autopilot at that point in time, sort of sleepless and trying to get everything in, in order to ship it three weeks before launch um, and just trying to push it through and, you know, get get the final checklist done. Um, so the, the the up until the point we took the decision, the inertia was leaning towards actually you know pushing it through and, and sending it up and seeing how it does perform. But um, uh, the trade-off was essentially, you know, one of those things. Uh, will it be a no launch or will it be a fail- failure, right? So we prefer it being delayed than it going up and not working because um, a lot of time was spent there and a lot of money was spent there, which at that point in time was significant. But while looking at the pros and cons, we decided that a few months here and there won't actually make a difference. What we do actually want to learn is uh, how the imager performs and whether it beams down data, what the quality of that data is, which can wait a few more months. Um, because of the investment in both time and money that had been spent up to there so finally that evening we took the call that you know it doesn't make sense to rush it through let's take a step back let's do uh let, let's hold ourselves to a higher bar of standard here make sure that everything's working as it's supposed to and then and do it but um uh, yeah, after we took that it was sort of a numb couple of days had to you know travel back to yeah. the office where everyone there, everyone was uh you know had to hold all hands in a town hall and you know convey the decision to everyone in the team answer all the questions um everyone was so looking forward to the launch when you've been working for more than a year right uh, that's sort of the culmination yeah. of the efforts and when someone hears that it's not actually going to happen um then you need to be able to actually be there give them the reasons and try to make them understand as well that you know it's actually for the better. So that was the next couple of days. And finally, I think, you know, on the fourth or fifth day, it hit um, with a little bit of a wave of sadness. <laughs> when, mm-hmm. And then finally, when the rocket went up without our satellite, that was even sadder because, you know, that's where our satellite had to be. Um, and we couldn't be there. Uh, but we got through that. Mm-hmm. I think you know, just getting to work every day on Space Tech and and having to work on another satellite just kept people busy, and um, we got through that. But a couple, it was a tough couple of weeks where people were obviously sad and upset that it did happen.
1: Okay, so I'd like to talk about actually flying uh, a constellation um, when that when that happens. Um, I think I saw that that the plan was uh, global coverage every 24 hours. Is is that right?
3: That's right. Yeah. So a very critical. Uh, differentiation here is here is that it's not all parts of the globe every 24 hours it's any part of the globe every 24 hours right so we can't uh, take uh, of landmass every 24 uh, hours that's just too much data um, but what we mean is any place on earth we can revisit within 24 days
1: that's a, a- Great lead in to another question from Chubby in the chat. Um, will it be possible to retarget a satellite at a new area on demand if some event needs attention, like a volcanic eruption or a chemical plant burning down, uh, or, you know, some explosion somewhere? Absolutely.
3: You know, I think the, with, with the two satellites that we have up there, the collection capacity is very limited. We can do a revisit of every 14 days or so with the two that we have up there. Um, and that's because You know, just small satellites, low, you know, field of view. But what we're building right now is we're building six satellites that will go up early next year. Now, with these six satellites up in space, we'll be able to do global coverage every two days, which means any place on Earth every two days. Um, And we can definitely retarget the areas that require... um, uh, priority um, if there's a forest fire somewhere we can ensure that a couple of satellites are focused on taking that every 48 hours and even less than 48 hours because that's a priority area if there's a volcanic eruption we can do that if there's some emergency somewhere else we can do that um, that's the flexibility that the constellation of the first six will give us starting with every two days and then we want to launch 12 more beyond that which will enable us to do that every 24 hours or so so i think that's uh that's definitely possible
1: and you're you're flying in a sun-synchronous orbit. Um, is that an absolute requirement? I guess, are, are there any other orbits that would have a different set of benefits rather than being able to overfly the same point at you know, at the same time of day?
3: Yeah, I think an inclined orbit is generally more suited for higher revisits. If someone wants every few hours or so, um, you need to have inclined orbits going over a particular geographical area. The reason why sun-synchronous orbit is an absolute necessity in our case is because of the hyperspectral camera. Now, what you're essentially capturing with these sensors is the reflectance values, uh, what is being reflected of the light uh, from the surface of the Earth with different materials. And, they, and that tends to change at different you know, sun angles and at different times. So maintaining the uniformity that if you're taking an image of this place at 11 a.m. today and we're taking an image of any other place at 11 a.m. we know that the sun illumination angle and the reflectance values will approximately be the same which means we can do a lot of comparison and model building and deep learning and computer vision um, because you need that consistency you need to know that the reflectance values will be the same here and there and that the conditions that um, at which the images are taken are also the same um, so it's a trade-off between whether you know if, if it's a defense or a security use case you are more likely happier with an inclined orbit where you can do you know much more higher revisit uh, within a few hours versus in our case we keep it circular synchronous orbit just so that we ensure that the data that we're taking not only today but you know a few years down the line there's an archival of this very useful data which can be used for model building and training that will be really helpful for analysis regardless of which part of the globe something is being used so you can take something that you learned in this area and then translate it to some other area without a lot of hassle so the sun synchronous part actually becomes a lot uh, more important because of the spectral nature of the imagery.
1: So um, do you have plans for how you're going to interface with your users. Um, how are they going to request and ingest their data?
3: Um, yeah. So I think it's a fairly straightforward map interface, right? If someone's used Google Maps or Google Earth, it's very similar to that. You log in to an account that you've created. Um, you search for the area that you want. You can either explore it yourself, you can add a latitude, longitude, and search for it, or you can search for the name of a place. And you can then uh, select a boundary. You can select a boundary that this is the area that I want images for, um, select a variety of parameters that, you know, I want an image for this area between these months of the year. I want, um, uh, them to have less than this percentage of cloud cover I want them uh, for uh, you know this frequently so I think that's something that they're able to select in the map like interface uh, with different options very similar to how sort of google earth or google earth engine is and um, they can you know either download that to their local machine or the cloud and do the analysis there if they um, know what to do there or we also provide the tools required to do the analysis on our platform itself which means they don't have to separately download it transfer it store it um, they can readily use the same tools that we have built for example we have already built out and tested an atmospheric correction module hyperspectral bands you know take so much data that there's a lot of these atmospheric disturbances that are also captured um, and you need to you know correct for those when you're uh, analyzing this imagery so we already built that algorithm so someone just has to click on mm-hmm. that and use that to remove the disturbances uh, which then makes that data ready for analysis and we have a few readily built deep learning models or machine learning models as well you know some of them can help with early identification of pests some of them can help pattern match or uh, you know methane leak some of them can help identify the moisture level um, of a particular Particular forest area um, so we're trying to have as many of these readily built models available but that will be a continuous process so it depends on the end user if they just want to explore the data and download it uh, they have are free to do that or if they want to actually Go uh, to the final level, analyze it, and download just a report all on our own cloud. Then you know that's something that they can do as well. Uh, so the answer to your question is it's a very simple Google Earth like map like interface with additional tools um, for everything up to the point where they can extract a report.
1: Could you talk a little bit more about your machine learning models? Um, how have you been able to develop them already? Were you training on on data that was collected on other vehicles? Um, what what does that look like?
3: Yeah, I think uh, a few ways. Um, one is we have an even smaller camera that we run on drones here, right? the The only problem with mm. that is that uh, you uh, you ca- you cover a very small area logistically with drones but that still gives you some level of information and imagery that you collect. So we regularly collect different kinds of terrains, different kinds of crops, um, and we downscale that imagery as to how it would actually look like from space. You know, Add in noise, reduce the resolution, and then use that for model building, um, which also helps later with, you know, seeing how satellite imagery is performing later with drone-based imagery. Um, the second way is, uh, you know, data from satellites like Hyperion that NASA had launched, that data is available open source. It's limited in nature, but it's still some data. But they also have an airborne collection program called Avaris, um, the Avaris NG program, where they have a hyperspectral imager on an airplane that they fly over different parts of the world. So it's a combination of all this um, some open source data that's available, uh, which is limited in nature, and secondly, a lot of collection that we ourselves do here on ground by flying a similar camera, a smaller camera on a drone, downscaling that data and building models on top of
0: that. I was curious as to how much of this data you process yourself, and basically, you're like developing your your own types of analyses that you can then give to the customer but um so i guess this like represents a difference in the pricing you have like different services that you can offer so you can just give them the raw data but if they want you can actually process that for something that you know they actually need it for so you have all these different ways of processing this because it does seem like a lot a lot of information and i think that there was a question from chubby who wanted to know um, how much do these satellites process per second? Like how much how much of the data is processed and how much of it is downlinked or is there some kind of a triage that's done beforehand? Because it's probably a lot. And like, if you don't need it, then I imagine you wouldn't need to transmit this back to ground.
3: Yeah, so I think um, there's there's two, two different kinds of processing, one on the satellite itself and then a major chunk of it that's done on ground. The level of processing that's done on the satellites today is sort of very primitive. But we have sort of taken a Tesla approach here where we do have the hardware necessary for a lot of um, even higher kinds of processing in space. But we want to gradually test that out. But as of today, it's predominantly only for compression um, of this data because since you're capturing the same image, but in hundreds of bands, you are sometimes 20 to 50 times more. you're, You're capturing sometime between somewhere between 20 to 50 times more data than a normal multispectral satellite um, would be capturing. So we need to actually compress that down. Um, each satellite uh, on a daily basis at full capacity alone would be close to 100 GB per satellite uh, per day. And then you have six satellites that will be in the first phase of the constellation. So that's you know closer to 600 GBs per day um, and then you keep on adding that on a daily basis this is at full capacity um, we plan to sort of still increase this but it's limited by the amount of data that it can actually beam down to a ground station that's limited by you know how f- how frequently we can be over a ground station and how much time we can actually beam it down to a ground station so um, that is a level of processing that's done on on the satellite itself where we do have the hardware for a lot of other things such as where we want to actually see if you know what percentage of the image is actually cloud cover so if it's greater than 50 60% of images is cloud cover it doesn't make sense for us to beam that down because it it can't be used in a in a useful way here on earth uh things like those that we want to test out but then finally once the images do come down the data that comes down is essentially what you call a level 0 data it's a bunch of zeros and ones and raw data and uh that you you have here you need to then you know map it with where, where it was actually taken, convert them into reflectance values and actually overlay them on top of a map-like interface to actually say, you know, this is an image that was taken over this city and heres here it is overlaid on top of the maps that we you know it to be um, and how accurate it is and things like that. So that's the basic level of pre-processing that's done. And then you have things such as removing your atmospheric disturbances you do your atmospheric correction you correct for your radiometric uh, levels and things like that as well so finally after pre-processing you have what you call a hyperspectral data cube um, you called a data cube because of the hundreds of bands that's there at that the third dimension there and then that is ready for further analysis where you have to now extract different kind of indices um, such as the NDVI which is uh, an indicator for the health of your crops, uh, NDVI. Uh, higher NDVI indicates, you know, greener crops, which greener crops, which means it's is healthier versus a lower number indicates that it's not doing so well. Things like that, and then finally, um, you have your very elaborate models that take in historical data that take in um, uh, that use deep learning to actually train it out, and then then you use it on on the new images that are actually beamed down becomes the final step after pre-processing and some basic level of processing as well. So all of that is done on cloud. Um, The processing is something that we do in-house because the important thing is not a lot of people have worked with hyperspectral data. Uh, Lots of people still struggle working with existing sources of satellite imagery we don't want anyone to have an excuse that yes, this data set is so good and it has so many use cases, but we don't know what to do with it. So we said, you know what, we'll just uh, provide you the tools as well to do this. Um, so that that's not an excuse that we would, would like to hear. So I think I hope that answers your question. Yep. Yeah, they don't have any excuse.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, it's uh, been absolutely fascinating to, to talk to you. We have our two traditional final questions. Our penultimate question is, where would you like to be found on the internet?
3: <laughs> so I think uh, you can find us on our website, Pixel Dot space, and you can reach out on contact at pixel dot space. We also do have LinkedIn and Twitter accounts uh, with the same name, twitter.com slash pixelspace. Uh, so I think that's some of the places where you can find it. You can find these in the footnotes of the, the podcast as well.
1: And uh, just as a heads up, you posted a link to your... Actually, it's not even a heads up. You posted uh, on your personal Twitter, you posted a photo of your bookshelf. And uh, ways, you and I have such similar tastes in science fiction and reading in general. This is one of the best looking, uh, bookshelves uh, I've seen in a while. And I would love to just sit and talk about science fiction with you for about an hour on top of this. Um, but fantastic taste in books. I have one question, uh, in one item in the overrated, underrated section, which we're about to do that refers to science fiction. So just, just a heads up.
3: (laughs) Awesome, looking forward to it.
2: Okay, so I have the honor uh, for this interview of asking our final question, which is more of a game than just a question. It's a series of questions. And so we like to play Overrated, Underrated, which is a quick-fire list of products or concepts. And what we would like for you is to tell us if the world sees too much value in them, too little value in them, or, in rare instances, correctly values them. Are you ready, Wace? I am good to go. Okay, Overrated, Underrated. Commercial launch vehicles. Underrated. Overrated. Underrated. Non-hyperloop mass transit. Overrated. There you go. <laughs> overrated. Underrated. Student space projects. Underrated. This this is a big one. This one I'm very interested in learning about. Your your thoughts on overrated <laughs> or underrated? The quizats haterac.
3: <laughs> this is. Uh, I would say it's. Rightly rated. (laughs) Rightly rated.
2: Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, For any listeners unfamiliar with that, uh, see the film or read the books, uh, Dune, and uh, yeah, you'll have a better understanding of that. (laughs) And finally, overrated, underrated
3: terrestrial telescopes. I would say that they're underrated. A lot of potential for doing a lot more.
2: I really appreciate that.
3: (laughs) I, I, yeah, astronomy and astrophysics is also a particular interest. So I think uh, we can do a lot more there.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, again, this has just been an absolutely delightful conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to come to talk to us.
3: Yeah, no, I think it's been a pleasure on my end as well. I don't get to go into such depth in a lot of cases. So it's, it's, uh, it's good to talk about what we are actually doing in, in actual depth.
1: Great. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much and, and have a great week.
3: Thank you so much. Have, uh, have a great week, all of you.
0: So, this week in Spaceflight History, we have a bunch of winners. Uh, we have Cy Kyle, Peter McMally, Desky Miller, Ross Peterson, the Greek Leon Running Man, and we have Uncle Willie. So, we have a lot. Because um, my clue was too easy, but that was that's fine by me. I don't think it was as bad as my last one. At least it's a little bit more fun.
1: You took a beating for how easy it was. I feel like three out of the five people said, this was too easy. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. The clue was two's company three's a record. So it was on the 13th of May, 1992. And it was the three person EVA of the shuttle flight STS-49. So that's the only time that's ever happened. So that's why it was a record. Uh, I don't know if it's happened since, has
2: it? Nope. That's the weird thing is that this wasn't the like golden age of like 80s, you know, shuttle missions where they were doing the really ridiculous things this was a ridiculous thing they did in the early 90s post-Challenger. And so mm-hmm. just nutty.
0: <laughs> yeah, true. And uh, so the three-person EVA was the record, although there were a number of other records set. And I think, Dennis, you you put a list in here, and I'll read those off once we get to it. But yeah, lots of different records set for this mm-hmm. particular mission. So one thing was that this was actually uh, the maiden launch of the shuttle Endeavor. So first launch. So on their first flight, they decide to set a bunch of other records. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so real quick, um, who is on board? And then we'll get to the actual event. So this uh, shuttle was commanded by Daniel Bradenstein or Brandenstein, piloted by Kevin Chilton, and then it had five other mission specialists, uh Pierre Thuitt, I think is how you say the last name, Thewitt, I've heard it enough times. Oh yeah, Thewitt, yeah. Pierre Thewitt, uh Richard Hebe, Catherine Thornton, Thomas Akers, or Akers, and lastly Bruce Melnick. So the primary mission, and we're just going to cover this particular event, which was the EVA, but there were many things that they did. But the primary mission was to retrieve Intelsat 603, which was stranded in LEO for two years. So this was an Intelsat that basically was launched on a commercial Titan 3. The second stage failed to separate um, due to a kick stage not being wired correctly. So basically that did not trigger and it stayed attached to the second stage. So they couldn't actually separate the spacecraft, you know, like along with the kick stage. So the ground controllers commanded the separation of the satellite from the kick stage so basically you have a satellite stranded in leo with no kickstage to get it to GEO. This uh, mission, and this is interesting, um, and there's a whole article that I found in the Washington Post about this, um, pretty interesting stuff. So the mission cost was $270 million and it did not have insurance. It actually was uninsured and this was something that they had decided to do because they thought it was the most financially uh, sound decision to make because at this point they already had 17 other satellites in orbit and they could take the loss like if they, you know, didn't get it to orbit and I mm-hmm. guess it just, it just didn't Seem worth it. Plus, they were probably, you know, counting on it actually working. So I guess they, you know, did all, of, you know, their calculations, and they came to the conclusion that it wasn't worth the extra fifty million dollars. But unfortunately, or fortunately, the satellite was not completely lost. They didn't have to eat that cost. They still had an option on the table. They could actually make a deal with NASA for one hundred and fifty million dollars uh to rescue uh this satellite and basically attach a new kickstage. So uh that's what they did. And the interesting thing was for this particular mission, they also did not insure it. So this one really <laughs> had to work. So this was gonna cost them four hundred and twenty million dollars. I mean that's how much they would have to pay if it worked and if it wasn't successful, that's how much it costs them for a mission that completely failed. And then if they lost the satellite for whichever reason then they probably would have to build a new one and you know just kind of like start all over again. So so basically, this was their last chance to get it right, and it was going to cost them $420 million. And it almost wasn't successful, but um, yeah. in the end, it was. So spoiler alert. So uh, the plan was to capture the kickstage – or I'm sorry. The plan was to capture the satellite and then attach a kickstage, which would be brought up on shuttle. So this is a lot easier lot easier said than done. The shuttle would need to raise its orbit once there, and then site ground controllers would actually lower that orbit for a rendezvous at 554 by 572 kilometers. Then after the rendezvous, one of the astronauts mounted on Canadarm would actually use a capture bar, which is this type of contraption which was specifically designed for this mission. It's basically this bar. It's about eight feet in length, I would say. And it has a little steering wheel attached to the middle of it. And the idea is this bar has these little attachments that capture the satellite. And then they use the steering wheel to actually cancel out uh, the spin or to very slowly de-spin it. It's a pretty interesting device, and then, and then it also has a grapple fixture attached to it because ultimately they would need to grab it with, you know, Canadarm candid arm, and then they would bring it down into the shuttle bay. But first you had to get it attached, and for that you need an astronaut. So they would actually have the astronaut attach the candid arm to, you know, get the thing on there. Then he could let go of it. He could step off, you know, come back in, and then they could use candid arm to actually grab the thing and bring it back in. Uh, that was the plan, at least. So um, IntelSat is, or this particular IntelSat was 4000 Kilograms or thereabouts, so pretty big. And it had a 3.5 meter diameter, and the bar does not span that entire 3.5 meters, but rather it grabs what I assume is. Or what was attached to the kick stage initially. So it kind of grabs onto this large ring. It looks like it's hard to tell. I watched the videos. I read as much as I could, but I think that that's the attachment point is however you mount the kick stage onto the satellite. That mm-hmm. part obviously is exposed because there is no kick stage. And so they kind of grab onto it and then they despin it one thing that would need to happen is for uh, the intel sat to be spun down mostly so it wouldn't be completely spun down but it was spinning at about 10.5 rpms they could despin it down to 0.65 and then from there they can use a little steering wheel attachment which i think um, i'm not sure but i think it provides a certain amount of resistance so that basically you can kind of you know hold on to it and then it will gradually despin the satellite i think that that's how it works or at least that's what makes the most sense to me So, yeah, if you look at it, the bar has these two little slots that both point in the same direction. And then he has these little, these levers that you can throw and that I think grip down on the part like where it attaches to the satellite. Mm. So I think that those, that, I mean, that's what the levers do. And I believe it's grabbing onto a ring that kind of is right there on the diameter about a couple feet in.
1: Man, that is an intense operation, right?
0: Yeah. And it gets more intense. So (laughs) That,
1: that would make me so dizzy. If your entire field of view is filled with this thing rotating, like forget it.
2: Face-to-face with it, yeah. You know? Yeah. By the way, I just noticed something about the capture bar that I didn't realize before. He was just trying to get it soft attached, but then there's a mm-hmm. uh, a power tool that would be used.
0: Yeah, there's a soft capture and then there's a hard capture. And um, I wasn't aware of a power tool. I figured soft just meant that he could, you know, kind of get the hooks in it, and then mm-hmm. hard meant that he could, you know, like throw those levers and yeah, latch down on it. That's
2: exactly what I was envisioning too. But but seeing this thing referencing a. Uh, Yeah, the attachment should be rigidized by Pierre Thuit with the installation of a locking device using a specially built power tool. Maybe maybe throwing the levers isn't enough for really making sure that this thing's holding on there good and hard.
0: Yeah, or maybe the power tool is what's built into the arm, and that's what they're referring to, those little levers. I, I mean, I don't know, but yeah, I didn't see any other... Tools, So, of course, it didn't go according to plan, but they did eventually attach it. So, I don't know.
2: Sorry, I thought that was interesting, but it's more derailing. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: so, during the first EVA, um, because it took more than one, again, spoiler alert, Pierre it, he was mounted on uh, the RMS they had to do the rendezvous. And uh, this was one of the records how many times they had to do, you know, a rendezvous. So they got to within proximity of the satellite. They got him up to the satellite. He's there with the capture bar. He gets a soft capture, but he can't seem to actually get it to, you know, lock in place. And what kept happening was it kept on kind of like wobbling and bobbing and slightly drifting. And then it kept, you know, like going off access. Basically, mm-hmm. it was essentially reacting too much to his movements. And so he was trying to catch it with this thing. And I'm trying to think of an analogous situation because I can kind of sort of feel what he's feeling there, like you're trying to do something and it's just not locking into place just because it keeps moving too much. So you're trying to, you know, catch a moving target and get things positioned correctly. Then every time you get it wrong, you just cause that object to move even more, which just makes it that much more harder. And so it's this bad feedback loop here. Um so basically yeah. and this is something that they had practice in the neutral buoyancy lab, but it was proving to be very different here. And probably just because you don't have the kind of resistance with water that you do in space or you or like the other way around you don't have the kind of resistance and space that you do in you know, the lab, um, things were moving a little bit too easily and they couldn't mm-hmm. get it to you know latch on. So he tries several times. Um, and then also, um, he had some problems with the RMS because the joints in the candid arm, they kept on locking up because um, they were putting candid arm into positions where it could not support those particular positions. Like if you think of all the various, mm. I don't know how many joints candid arm has, but, there, but there's a certain way. That it has to be extended and you have to like move it around you can't just throw it in any which direction um it's actually Mm -hmm. kind of an art form in itself and i believe that there's software on board that basically determines that right so you basically just control the end effector and the computer determines what to do with each of the little joints and arms and elbows and so forth um i don't remember quite how that works i know we talked about it before
1: system of equations yeah it's it's just math
0: yeah yeah Yeah, it's just a lot of math. And I guess the math didn't work out this time because I kept on locking up. Uh, So that was not a good thing either. Um, Plus, they were trying to do the capture during orbital night so he couldn't see what he was doing very well. That was, you know, another added problem. So mission control said, hey, you know, let's leave it alone. We'll let Intelsat try and restabilize it from the ground, and then we'll come back the next day. Um, So they did that. And during the second attempt, one big difference was um, they did the rendezvous at night, but Uh, This time, Pierre, he waited for the daylight cycle of the orbit because he didn't want to try this again in the complete darkness. And he made five attempts, but still, it was the same problem. He could not get a hard capture, and the satellite kept on wobbling, kept on kind of like, you know, pitching to one side or the other. If you watch the video of this, Mm -hmm. it's just moving around too much, and he can't get it captured. And it looks like he should be able to. Like, he's right there. He's got the thing in place. But for some reason, something is not locking into position. I'm not going to judge an astronaut because it's way harder than I'm sure it looks because because he's right there. And I'm like, yeah, just, you know, you got it. But I guess he just didn't.
2: This is a lot like the problems that, right, when it was just, I mean, the last twist that I did, where Pinky Nelson was trying to grab uh, the solar max and he was having the same issue where Newton's third law was just screwing with him because in his case, he didn't even have the luxury of being at the end of the RMS. But even so, it's still painful and difficult and you you know, whenever you make an attempt and fail, (laughs) you're imparting forces on the (laughs) thing that then starts to tumble or rotate more or do whatever.
0: Yeah. So Thewit and Heeb came back in uh, this did not work. So they were going to, you know, basically go back to the drawing board. Uh Emission control was working on the ground. Uh, I mean, this was clearly not working. So they needed a different solution. So on the ground, they got a tiger team together. And I don't know if we've ever mentioned that before. I'm sure we have. Mm. It's just a cool definition. If you look it up in Wikipedia, I think it's defined as a bunch of people who kind of don't care about anything other than get the job done. So it's kind of mm. like a, just a bunch of eccentric geniuses that you get together to kind of fix something. It, it kind of had that flavor to it. And somebody <laughs> had once suggested that it be called the, the chimpanzee team because tigers don't work as a team but chimps I guess do but that never caught on. <laughs> so... I like that. So they threw around some ideas, but ultimately it was the crew on board that had their own idea, and that was uh, to put three astronauts outside and that they would try to capture it by hand. And uh, they you know, were given the go-ahead, and so that's what they did. So basically they first tried to test this in the neutral buoyancy lab, and um, I noted that Story Musgrave was one of the astronauts on the ground doing this, so that's kind of cool. I just like any mention of Story Musgrave. But um, they performed it in the neutral buoyancy lab. They got the go-ahead. And then while that was going on, they actually had to make sure that, you know, you could fit three astronauts into an airlock um, because they had never done that before. So they were able to get all three Mm. of them in there. I suppose maybe they could do one, then two. Um, I don't know if, you know, I mean, that might have been a worst-case scenario that they would just have to do them separately. Um, But I don't know how long that depress sequence takes. And so the astronaut on the outside is probably wasting air the whole time, um, you know, if it proves to be a long EVA, which it did, because that's another record that we will get to. (laughs) But yeah, they got all three in there. And while that was happening, so they are inside the airlock. uh, The shuttle is making its third rendezvous. um, So it's at a distance of 12 miles. And then there is a computer glitch that was found within Endeavor's software, which um, basically prevented them from doing the final calculations for the final proximity operations for the satellite. So they couldn't get that final 12 miles. And uh, normally this would be calculated on the ground, but there just so happened to be a storm that was above the ground station, so they couldn't do that either. <laughs> so they really hmm. didn't have many options, so they had to wait. And then finally the comms was restored at with just 45 seconds remaining till they had to make the burn sequence. Um, but at that point, you know, they decided to cancel it. So they had to do another orbit, and then about 90 minutes later, they finally were able to Get within the Canadarm's range of motion there, um, or actually closer, because they actually maneuvered the shuttle right up to it. So you have the cylinder, and then you have the shuttle bay just underneath it. So basically, mm. if if you imagine, they could just reach up and grab part of that circumference of the satellite. So the three astronauts actually had to use some parts from another experiment that they would do a few days later, which was the ASIM, which was the assembly of station by EVA methods. So this was, um, and I don't know if you have talked about this before, but this is where they were trying to, you know. Use some truss structures to build some kind of a structure. I don't think it served any purpose but they were, you know, just like trying it out. So they had a whole bunch of little Lincoln log type pieces that they could put together Mm -hmm. Um, and they used some of that to build a little bridge across the bay and then they attached um, a couple of foot restraints to it and that's how the other two astronauts were able to fix themselves to the shuttle while the third astronaut basically stayed inside the RMS.
2: Very fortuitous.
0: Yeah, like if they didn't have that, those spare parts, I don't know what they would have done. Um, I don't know if they have spare foot restraints on hand that they could yeah. attach somewhere else. But basically, they were able to use that truss structure. And so from there, they basically got within proximity of the satellite. It was coming down. They grabbed it. They still had a hard time doing that even. Um, it kept on wobbling. And it was still rotating very, very slowly, but it was still rotating. And again, you have to imagine that this thing weighs like 4,000 kilograms. So it's very difficult to stop that rotation. You can't do that, especially if you're attached to something on the shuttle. Just imagine trying to you know grab onto that. I don't know what would happen, but it would probably be really, really bad. Yeah. I don't I don't know what would happen in that situation if it would rip, if it would rip the astronaut from the foot restraint, or more likely, he would just lose his grip. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. I think that's more likely to happen. So they grabbed it, and then at this point, what who was still on the RMS, he had the capture bar, and he still had to like attach that to the satellite. And I'm not sure why, because it was already right there. I guess the final operations needed to be performed by the RMS. So again, it had that grapple fixture, so it you know grabs on, and then I guess from there lowers it into position so that they can make the connections to the kick stage. Uh, so they couldn't do that part by hand. They still had to have the RMS manipulating the satellite by way mm-hmm. of the capture bar. So. They they still had to get that put in place but you know they were able to do that because it was right there in front of them and they could you know stabilize it keep it still get the thing attached uh-huh. so they got that put on there they got the kick stage attached and then they were able to spring it back out into space they were you know like released it and once they got some distance they took off and uh the satellite was good to go and um it made it to its uh correct orbit so it was a successful mission it was worth the 420 million dollars that ultimately went into it for Intelsat. so i skipped a whole bunch of other stuff on this Mission because again, I just wanted to cover the actual three astronaut rescue of the satellite. But, mm-hmm. um, some records here, Dennis, that you had it was that yes, indeed, this was the first time that they did an EVA with three astronauts. It was the first shuttle mission with four EVAs total because the fourth EVA was going to come when you know they did the experiment with the ASIM. Um, and that was performed by Catherine Thornton and somebody else, one of the other astronauts, yeah, Tom Akers. So, Tom Akers, yep. So,
2: they were they were just so lucky. I don't know if "lucky" is the right word, but it was very well planned. Maybe to have this be a mission where it was just so EVA heavy because they had two other spacewalkers with their own spacesuits on board already, plus the, the that structure, that bridge structure that you talked about, and so they were able to kind of. Just call Tom Akers up and just be like, hey, you know, (laughs) we need you for this previous – Yeah, we need a third third person out. Exactly, yeah. And and they still had uh, Kathy Thornton in the bullpen if they needed uh, to get another person.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because I was wondering, like, I know that shuttle suits, I don't know how many – like, I think the torsos are one size fits all, right? And then the other extremities are kind of more – customizable like 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 i was thinking that they might have had to just build a third suit because they didn't necessarily have three of them ready to go
1: they had four ready to go i think that's kind of crazy because there's not
0: that much space in a shuttle
1: (laughs) yeah they there's no way they had all of them sitting out right like just having two of these things out is is pretty crowded Mm.
0: and then another um, another record was that this was the first attachment of a live rocket motor to an orbiting satellite. So that's the first right there. And it was the first time that the shuttle used a drag chute during uh, the landing, which I guess before then I thought that it always had. And I had, I guess, misremembered that uh, for the first half of the shuttle's lifetime, they didn't do drogue chutes.
1: Yeah, I don't think they could land at Edwards until they had the or they, uh, they could only land, land at Edwards because they had the mm. big lake bed. And to land, at, lake bed, exactly. and to land it at the cape, you had to be able to stop. I could be totally wrong about that one, but I think that's. Oh no, I'm,
2: that sounds. I'm like... remembering that too. Yeah, that that was a big thing.
1: But yeah, def, definitely is weird. <laughs> I'll I'll give you that <laughs> for sure.
2: So I definitely know that there were you know significant differences between the Kennedy landing and Edwards, and how kind of I guess safer and easier Edwards was for that reason of mm-hmm. it uh, just being. You know, a large lake lake bed, but but apparently they were able to do some Kennedy landings even back in the eighties. Okay, um, I'm guessing that they were just touchy and scary <laughs> until they finally got the drogue shoots.
1: <laughs> All right, thank you, thank you, David. That was that was good. Didn't think we were going to have a steering wheel on this show for <laughs> until we have uh, <laughs> another rover <laughs> out there.
0: That might be another record. Maybe it was the first steering wheel in space. I mean, it was a wheel <laughs> that steered. It wasn't just like you know a wheel, but specifically to
1: well. Well, the, the, lunar, the lunar rover had a steering wheel. Maybe, maybe the first steering wheel used in, uh, in low Earth orbit. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, the first steering wheel in space, based, not on another planetary body. <laughs>
1: uh, right, in, in operation yeah. in, in space. In any orbit. Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, so uh, next week is the 17th through the 23rd of May. Dennis, do you got a clue for us? Next week in 1961. If a
2: spacecraft falls in a forest and no one is around to hear it, dot, dot, dot.
1: <laughs> Some Something about bears and forests. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, if you think that you know what this clue is in reference to, shoot us a tweet use the hashtag this week SF and good luck everybody good luck
0: all right so let's move on to upcoming spaceflight and astronomical events and what's the first one Dennis
2: well first up we have something uh, a little atypical we have a lunar eclipse I uh, don't cover the, enough of those I think I don't know uh, and so right there's a lunar eclipse so it's passing in the Earth's shadow and so that is not like a solar eclipse a lot of people will have the opportunity to see it and so if you're in the Americas or uh, western edge of uh, essentially the entire length of Africa. Or if you're on station at Antarctica, you'll be able to see this uh, total eclipse taking place on May 16th, uh, possibly the 15th, depending on time zones and where you are. But it's going to be a total one, and so it will get nice and good and dark. And so the totality will last a little over 80 minutes, uh, with partiality beginning around a little over lasting a little over 200 minutes it's a, a fun thing and uh for at least uh people on the east coast of the u.s it'll be taking place at a fairly convenient time of day uh, i believe 10 a.m so. time of night time of night time <laughs> 10 p.m or so <laughs> all
1: right and then after that we have a falcon 9 block 5 launching starlink group 415 this was originally scheduled to fly i think tuesday but it, it Got bumped back and I'm not 100% sure why. Um, but the, uh, the launch time is, uh, 10 minutes after midnight <laughs> UTC, zero, zero, 0010 UTC, uh, on, uh, May 16 well, May 17th UTC, probably gonna be, uh, the 16th, uh, for everybody in the Americas. Um, and that's launching out of Slick 40. All right. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald, Jakey,
0: and Tim Dodd for our music.
2: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout-out to Chris, Deathkin, Stanley, Mike, Colin, Chubby, VET, and the Greek for joining us live in today's chat. Thank
1: you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoods. You can talk
2: about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're an Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by
0: emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. We'll